Miyuki Okiranta here, with the next in our season of Earshot, where we meet the makers in the doco team and hear what inspires them. Lynn Gallagher has worked across the ABC, in the religion unit, the arts unit, the social history unit, and now in the documentary unit. And she recently finished her second PhD, which explores tiny airports across Australia. Now, Lynn's dialing in from rural Victoria. Lynn, you there? Hello. I'm Mukes. How are you? I'm pretty good. So, Lynn, what have you chosen for us? I've chosen The Lady of the Swamp. Um, it's a documentary by our colleague who has just recently left us, Mike Ladd, and it's really fine piece of work that speaks to me because it's my local area. It's a story that was set just a few kilometres from where I'm sitting now in South Gippsland and I identify with the woman in the story. So you're talking about place. Is it because place is, is such a huge part of this documentary? And it's place that you can hear which I just and that's what I've always loved about Mike Ladd's work he's such a good location recordist the story was set in 1953 so there's no actual audio from that period of time no archives that he's used but the story is about a woman whose house becomes so decrepit that it sort of gets assumed by the swamp and the blackberries take over and there's mold running down the walls and she continues to live in this space and the way that Mike brings it to life, not just with location recordings, but he had the opportunity to work with, and this is characteristic of his work, with a sound designer called Tom Henry. And he commissioned original music by Jacob Gaudasinski. And that's what really makes this, for me, three really simple sound elements a beautiful piece of piano music, the lovely location recordings, and the beautiful way of mixing it all together. So with our producer ears on, what should we listen for? Listen intently for the bit about halfway through where the frog sounds mix in with the piano sounds. That to me is perfect Mike Ladd. The way that that's brought together, not just by Mike, but by, I said, that whole production team. It's done so beautifully and it speaks to the fact that there may have even been frogs in the piano. <laughs> and it also speaks to the musicality of frogs. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that nature might take us over one day, and that's the way I feel now in the middle of summer with the weeds rising and the blackberries scraping in at my windows, I too could be the lady of the swamp. <laughs> well, here it is. The Lady of the Swamp by Mike Ladd. South Gippsland, late autumn, 1952. In her decayed mansion, Tullaree, Margaret Clement sat alone. Her house was overgrown with blackberry bushes and surrounded by a swamp, a moat of freezing water, chest deep in places. Rain ran down the inside walls of the darkened house. The roof was falling away, the floorboards were rotten, and it was the most miserable, miserable environment you could possibly imagine. There were snakes crawling through the hallway, 
young kids, when she and her sister were away for a while, would ride their horses down the hallway of the, of the property. If you were a stranger to the area, you would have thought, gee, that place has been abandoned for years. Nobody lives in there anymore, but they did. It was still Margaret Clements's home. Marooned in the swamp, Tullery was a mouldering museum of past splendour. She and her sister came back from their cruises in their heyday, bringing with them incredibly beautiful rugs from China, Japanese vases, all the wonderful glittering gifts you could imagine picking up on your travels through the Orient, bringing them all back to this uh, house as it once was, beautiful mansion, and all those artefacts gradually, gradually became eaten away by mould, all the tapestries uh, fell apart. They just broke away from their hangings. There were spiders' webs everywhere. There were birds flying in and out. And the place also was surrounded in and out by cats. Empty tins of cat food piled up like a mountain outside the property. And surprisingly enough, the cats seemed to have been better fed than she and her sister were in their final days there. Amongst the decayed finery was a lit piano, covered in bird droppings and fabulously out of tune. I think that came from one of their trips to Europe because they skied down through the the Alps. Um, They brought the piano back. Anything of value that they, they saw, they thought, we'll have that, we've got the money. In fact, they were very well thought of young women. They were even presented at court, as Margaret put it, at Buckingham Palace at one stage, because they were regarded as among the cream of Australian society. Margaret's once elegant hair was rough cut with shears, her clothes threadbare. She once was a beautiful woman in fine dresses, the most expensive dresses you could think of. But now she walked through the uh, empty corridors of Tullery wearing an old black uh, woolen coat with a fur collar. She would wear that to try to keep out the cold and the biting wind which blew in from Venus Bay, not so far away, um, during the winter days. Um, During the summer days, she wore uh, some light clothing, obviously, but um, ragged clothing. It was beautiful clothing at one stage, but it just turned into rags, but she would still wear it because it reminded her of how she once was. But it was also a necessity because she didn't have anything else. Once a week, with a hessian sack slung over her shoulder and testing the water in front of her with a stick, Margaret waded through the swamp and walked 11 kilometres to the small town of Buffalo to buy supplies. She became known as the Lady of the Swamp. When her sister Jeannie died in 1950, Margaret lived alone in the ruined house with her cats and her dog Dingo. Then, in May 1952, Margaret Clement simply disappeared. So who was she? And how did it all come to this? Author, Richard Shears. 
Well, her father came out from Scotland back in the 1850s, 1860s, to try his luck on the gold fields of Ballarat, west of Melbourne. Um, didn't do very well at all there, and decided to try the other side of Melbourne, to the east, and, and uh, set up um, a fairly modest home in uh, Gippsland. His own father, who was uh, a whiskey producer, sent his uh, son, Peter Clement, a couple of barrels of um, very fine Scotch whiskey, which uh, Peter Clement then proceeded to sell to the neighbourhood. He was known as Peter the Packer because he was uh, selling food to various people and carting it along on a horse and dray up to the minefields. And um, one day he gave a lift to a, a few miners as he was travelling up to the mine and uh, they gave him a hint. They said, um, look, thanks for giving us the lift. Uh, thanks for dropping your fine whiskey. In return, I'll give you a tip, buy shares in the Long Tunnel Mine, which he did and they hit the roof and he, overnight virtually he became a very wealthy man bought himself a really nice property married a local woman a result of that marriage was uh, Jeannie and margaret clement and um, two other sisters and two brothers in time when peter clement died he left margaret and Jeannie £25,000 each. It, it gave them the chance to purchase the newly built Tullery for £18,000, which still left them a goodly sum of money to spend on their travels. At the time of their father's death, Margaret and Jeannie had been boarders at Melbourne's Methodist Ladies' College. They completed their education with a grand tour of Europe, then joined Melbourne's upper crust in an endless reciprocal circuit of luxury parties. But they began to miss Gippsland. They seemed to have got tired of being at the centre of things in Melbourne. Margaret asked Jeannie if, if she missed the country, and Jeannie said yes. And they'd heard through other people about the building of Tullery. They decided to travelled down to Gippsland and have a look at it and uh, fell madly in love with the place and that's when they decided to leave Melbourne behind and um, head off to the uh, to the country and they bought um, I think it was something like 900 hectares of land um, that came with the purchase price of the mansion and they would just stand uh, on the veranda of their um, newly acquired home and look out across the very flat landscape but look at the cattle that, that were grazing on it and realise that this was going to be their life for a long time to come and they were going to fill it up with all the riches of the world that they could get their hands on. The pastures looked very fine at that point, didn't they? But there was a reason for that too. Well, that's exactly right. The gentleman who um, built the place realised that in the winter time there was a bit of a problem with um, flooding, the land being very flat. So he set to work in digging drainage so that when the heavy rains came, the water just poured away from the flat land and headed out to the Tarwin River to the sea. So there was no problem with water. And also the house was built on a slight rise, not much of a rise, but just looking at it as they did when they first arrived, everything was perfect. There was no swamp, there was nothing to worry about. This was their life. They were going to live it up as high as they could. 
Tim and Janet McRae are the current owners of Tullaree. There's no sign of Margaret Clement's swamp today. Sleek cattle graze on lush grass. New wind farms turn their giant pinwheels in the distance. It's a peat swamp. The soil is black organic peat soil. It's fantastic for cattle grazing. It does still flood, but not badly. The flood is much more a blessing than a curse because if you have a, a reasonable flood briefly at least once a year, the flats will stay green and lush all the way through the summertime. So we don't have to irrigate, we don't have to fertilise, um, and also the peat soil does not get boggy. We can usually get out. If the flood does come up, it's, it's usually only here for a total of about three days. It's spectacular, you know, the black swans come in, the ducks. Um, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful to see. Mm. Tullery's constructed entirely of bricks that were made on the property. Here on the, the bricks, this is where the original Tullery brand hung for many, many, many years rocking in the wind on this nail. Oh, yeah. And you can, you can make the out where the handle, and at the bottom here is where the head of it was, was rocking. Yeah. Also on the bricks here, you can see scarring in the bricks, which indicates what a rough state the house did get into from roofing iron, which had collapsed down off the veranda and was flapping in the wind for many, many years. You can see the corrugated shaped scarring dug deeply into the bricks. And that gives you an indication of what a poor state the house got into by mm. the 1950s. So when I look at that, I imagine poor old Margaret living here, not being capable of doing any house maintenance. On a dark, cold night, the southwest wind's blowing hard. Obviously, the roofing iron is flapping against these bricks, screeching up and down, and it's cut a good inch in places into the bricks. And um, it would have been cold, would have been dark, would have been noisy, and it would have been very lonely. The Tullery Mansion is now beautifully restored to its Victorian splendour, just as it was in the days when Margaret and Jeannie threw parties for the Melbourne and Gippsland gentry who arrived in their newly invented motor cars or in coaches driven by liveried servants. Coming out of the strong wind. Yes. So this is the, um, what was originally the dining room. Um, there is made mention of there being a ballroom. I think this is the biggest room that if there was any dance as such, it would have been in this room here. It's outside this room that we have all that line of coat hangers, so it makes sense that in those days they would have been greeted at the front door, walk down, hang their furs and coats and, and then be entertained within this dining room. Were there ever any gentlemen on the scene courting these ladies? They would have been a great catch. Oh, they were. One of them was a gentleman called Hamish, a fine young man who uh, had his eye on 
Jeannie, and Jeannie had her eye on him. But uh, the Boer War came. He went off and to fight it, as many young men did from Australia in those days. And Jeannie was absolutely shattered one day when uh, she received a, a letter from the Defence Department telling her that uh, Hamish had been killed. But there was another young man fighting that war called Willie. And Willie came back with a, a bullet wound in his leg. And he and Margaret had a bit of a, a fling together. I don't know how far that went in those days. But a sad incident occurred when um, Willie and Margaret went off into bushland and Willie took a shot at a wallaby but he only wounded it and Willie just stood there and did nothing as it as it sort of tried to hop away and it landed in the river and and uh, was fighting for life anyway the whole incident terrified her and she wanted nothing more to do with Willie from that day on and I think it may have had some kind of psychological effect on her I don't know but after that there were no men in, in her life that I could find Margaret and Jeannie knew absolutely nothing about farming and left the management of Tullaree to their brother Peter. Then the First World War arrived and Peter joined up. He told them, don't worry, I'll be back, I'll be fine. It won't happen to me what happened to, uh, to the other um, young men in your life. But he came back absolutely shell-shocked. He was unable to do anything, was basically a nervous wreck and no one seemed to be able to help him. Uh, but they were still going off, going off on their um, their travels, you know, before the war, after the war. They were still enjoying themselves. But this time, while they were away, things started to go bad. They employed a number of people who were very unscrupulous. They would sell the fine cattle that were on the land make a good profit for themselves uh, and buy very poor cattle and replace them on the pasture so that when the two women came back from their travels they'd look out across the pasture and they'd see um, 50, 100 cows there grazing away without realising that these were very poor beasts compared to the ones that were, were there. They were seen as, as very inept, totally unaware of how to cope with the land. They were rich pickings, if you like. The maintenance of the land was neglected. The ditches began to clog up, and here and there, there were sort of patches of flooding. Again, the sisters didn't really kind of take much notice. They just thought it had been raining heavily the previous night, but they didn't realise, in fact, that it was the drains that were clogged and the water was overflowing into the fields. Then, in November 1934, a big storm hit Tullaree. It came sweeping in from Venus Bay, if the place had not been built as, as strongly as it had been, it would have possibly been blown over. But certainly the windows were smashed in by the storm. What cattle they did have just drowned. The, the land flooded. The water rose to um, almost a waist height uh, overnight. And dead cattle would f float past the windows. They found a, a sheep 
uh, on the on the kitchen bench, broken into the house and jumped onto the bench to escape from the water. I mean, that's how bad the flood was. And it was from that time on that the flood really never, ever went away. There was always water around, although in the summertime it was possible to walk out through it because it was fairly shallow. But wintertime, when the winter rains came in, it became impossible to use the driveway. No one could get up and back. Because of a combination of naivety, bad luck and exploitation by others, through the 1930s and 40s, Margaret and Jeannie gradually lost their farm income, their stock and most of their inheritance. The servants and parties were long gone. The sisters were reduced to asking their aged mother for help, but she'd also lost most of her money. Yes, look, we have here, Mike, some letters that were handwritten by Margaret. She would often write to her mum asking for food and provisions for shoes, etc. This one here was dated December the 13th, 1934, so that's when the big flood was. And she writes here, Dear Ma, I'm going into Buffalo today to get anything that is there. We're still trying to clean things up. The house is in a terrible state of mud and the cattle were drowned on the Friday night. This one here. Dear Ma, I received your letter two days ago. You said in it you were sending a list of things to the storekeeper to send us every week. It will be a good thing to do if he will do it. Six tins with potatoes make six meals. Everything we get has to be cooked on an open fire. The only little stove in the place is useless. Will you be as quick as you can in the making of any arrangement? You can make because we will soon be finished what we have now. I hope you are all well, your loving daughter, Mark. Whenever she had some cash, Margaret would wade across the deepening swamp to buy supplies at the Buffalo store. And she would carry these, these groceries in, in this hessian sack, around the top of which she tied a rope. And she'd hook that rope around one of her fingers, sling the rope over her back, and with, with the rope through her finger, she'd walk back along the road and then trudge through the swamp back to the house tullery. Quite often she would arrive late at night because it was a huge trudge. I mean, it would be for most people these days. And um, she, was, she was getting on in years now. She was in her 60s. And it would have been icy wading through that swamp in winter. Her legs were cut by the ice. Uh, which had formed over the top of the uh, swamp. And uh, she would often arrive back with blood on her legs uh, from the ice. And uh, Jeannie would by then have lit a fire, knowing the plight her sister was in, 
seeing Margaret virtually falling through the uh, front door and uh, get her sister up by the fire and cook that evening meal, which would might just be boiled potatoes and, and uh, corned beef out of a tin, and that would be it. Why do you think they didn't just sell and get out of there if the situation was so bad? I think it's because they just couldn't see a way of letting go. I mean, it was their home, the house was theirs, and they were the houses, if you can see what I mean. There was no way they could let go. They were also fiercely proud. Very proud. Anyone who genuinely did offer, they would say, no, we can manage ourselves, thank you very much. By 1950, Jenny had become bedridden, and in the depths of that winter, she died. So the undertaker had to travel quite some distance, I think from one thaggy, and was, he was astonished with the police who arrived to see the swamp that they had to get through. Finally reached the house, loaded Jeannie up onto the stretcher, and uh, by now it was nightfall, and by the light of gas lamps, hurricane lamps and torches, they waded through the swamp carrying this body, branches of these dead trees sticking up through the swamp water and the flickering of torchlights across the vast swathe of water and the men carrying the stretcher. Extraordinary scenes. Margaret was left alone with her cats and her dog Dingo. Well, almost alone. Neighbours Stan and Esme Livingstone had been taking an interest in her situation. Esme waded through the swamp to bring Margaret little presents of food and to take her shopping for treats and a chat. Meanwhile, Stan began putting pressure on Margaret to sell Tullaree to him, offering to build her a bungalow on the property if she'd move out of the main house. Stanley Livingston was a giant of a man. He had a violent past and was known to have hit Esme. He later became the chief suspect in Margaret's disappearance. But there was another candidate, her nephew, Clem Carnahan. He believed that he had a, a right to the property. He was a rather unsavoury character, from what I could gather, and he was after Margaret's signature on, on a power of attorney for years and years, but Margaret just didn't give in to him. She didn't like him very much, and one day Margaret disappeared from the property, turned up at St Kilda in Clement Carnahan's flat. She was accusing him of kidnapping her. It was pretty obvious that Clement Carnahan, with the help of a, an un, another unsavoury character who was a butcher, had gone to the property and had, uh, if I can put it nicely, collected Margaret, had brought her back to uh, his flat, where he attempted to induce her to give him her power of attorney. But she refused. She left the house when they were all asleep one day and started walking along St Kilda Road carrying, as I understand it, a hurricane lamp. It must have been an extraordinary scene of this old lady wearing that black coat with the fur collar, walking along St Kilda Road towards the city, towards the railway station, and getting on a train. She had no money, but somebody took pity on her, let her get on the train back to Gippsland. Margaret wrote Clement Carnahan out of the will and eventually sold Tullaree to the Livingstones, 
Stan began building Margaret a bungalow and dragging the channel to drain the swamp. Well, here we are. We're right beside the, the what we call the Fish Creek Drain, which is the main drainage channel through the middle of Tullaree, which it goes passes directly in front of the homestead. And it is the channel which is dug by Stan Livingston in um, the early 1950s. He was actually in the process of digging this when Margaret disappeared. He got the contract off the Tarn River Improvement Trust to dig this channel. The story goes that Stan was quite adamant that if anybody was going to dig a drain through Tullaree, it was only going to be him. And um, he bought his own large machine and made sure in no uncertain terms that he was the one that got the contract to dig the main drainage through Tullaree. Only recently, an elderly neighbour told the McCrae's of hearing something strange the night Margaret disappeared. He said that Stan Livingston's drag line was positioned at the junction of the Bald Hills and the Fish Creek drain at the time of um, Margaret's disappearance. And um, we had also been told by a, a person who was in the vicinity that they believed they heard the drag line fire up during the night when she passed away. So there's all these bits of information that um, keeps us guessing about where Margaret may finally be. Now, why would the digger start up in the middle of the night? The police questioned the Livingstones and searched the swamp, but found nothing. Their other suspect, Clem Carnahan, had an alibi. He was in St Kilda the night Margaret disappeared. Two years later, with no trace of her found, Margaret Clement was declared legally dead. The Livingstones spent 12 years developing Tullaree, restoring the house and returning the pasture to its former glory. They sold the property for £126,000, a massive profit, and moved to Queensland. Then, in the 1970s, some bones were found at nearby Venus Bay. Some land was being cleared to make room for holiday homes. A tractor driver was uh, grading the land. He unearthed something which was white. When he went to look at it, he realised it was a skull, human skull. I'm standing here at the corner of Saturn Parade and Milky Way in Venus Bay. All the streets around here have cosmic names like Satellite or Jupiter or Mercury. But it was here when they were excavating this site that in November 1978 they found a skull and some bones. There's currently a beach shack here for sale but in those days it was a sand dune. They later determined that the bones belonged to a 60 to 70 year old woman, most likely Caucasian. They could tell that this woman had never had children and that she walked with a slight stoop. 
All of those things fitted Margaret Clement. They also worked out from the way the body was buried that it had been deliberately buried. The discovery of the bones was enough for the police to open a new investigation and for an inquest to be held. Several witnesses came forward saying Esme, at different times, had confessed to them that Stan had murdered the old woman and that Esme was worried the same thing would happen to her. She told one lady uh, who'd been on a cruise with the Livingstones just by chance. She said to um, this particular lady... If anything happens to me, um, you'll know that my husband has thrown me over the side of the ship because he knows that um, I know that he's killed somebody. Now, she told that story uh, about her husband killing somebody to several people, none of whom knew each other, but who in time told the police the same story. So Esme obviously did tell that story. It wasn't somebody making it up. But at the inquest... Esme denied ever making these statements. Margaret's dental records were lost, that is, if she ever had any, so they couldn't prove the skull was hers. And Stan's defence was simple. Why would he kill the old lady when he'd already legally bought Tullaree? The police had a theory about this. It's possible that Margaret Clement refused to leave the property and that Stan Livingstone was furious with her, saying, you know, we bought this place, we're building a house for you. And she would have probably said, this has been my home, it has been my home all my life. Um, I've changed my mind. You can have the title. It's your house, but I'm not going to leave it. I'm not going to leave it to move into a little wooden place beside what has always been my home. And Stan Livingstone, arguing with her, may have just flung a backhander at her, hit her across the face, and it might have been a fatal blow. Then it would have been down to him to get rid of the body. Unable to positively identify the bones as Margaret's, the coroner couldn't commit Stan and Esme to trial. He returned an open verdict, though he said he was far from convinced by the Livingstone's testimonies. The case was closed. Stan died in 1992, Esme in 1994. They had no children. At a recent Tullery Open Day, the visitors have their own opinions. It was Livo. <laughs> she could have just tripped. Well, Pete is, is dangerous stuff. If it's Pete out there, she could be the Pete lady. Stan Livingston. And yeah. I would dearly love for someone to find her body. We should have all come with our spades today. With the improvement of DNA testing, you'd think the bones found at Venus Bay could be tested against Margaret's living relatives. But there's a final twist to this story. Well, the problem is, where are the relatives these days and what test pieces of material do they have? The bones themselves have disappeared these days. They were last heard of in a storeroom beneath the uh, Victoria Museum in Melbourne. (laughs) Um, But someone tried to find them uh, a few years ago and couldn't. They were in a cardboard box. So 
Oh dear, uh, so even the well, bones have gone. Even the bones have disappeared, yes. But perhaps they weren't Margaret's bones after all. Perhaps, as Esme said in one of her confessions, the police were looking in the wrong place. The cows are walking over the old lady, back there on Tullaree, the home she never could leave. The Lady of the Swamp, Margaret Clement, was produced by Mike Ladd. The sound engineer was Tom Henry, and original music by Jakob Gadashinsky. Head to the Earshot website to see photos of Margaret wading through the swamp. I'm Miyuki Ranta, and join me again next time for another of our producer picks. Until then. <laughs>